Such nerds. Yeah. And there you go. Woo! <laughs> That's going to have to get cut. Right. Thank you and welcome to season one of the Such Nerds podcast, our seventh episode talking about Isaac Asimov's foundation. This week we're discussing part five, the rap superstars, right? Is that, is the rap superstars, Peter? What was it again? What are we talking about this week? I think, I think it was uh, Machiavelli by Tupac. Oh, hold on. Let me just double check here. Oh, it's the Merchant Princes. We're talking about the Merchant Princes this week, folks. Uh, my name is Jason out of Hartford, Connecticut, and I'm here with my co-hosts. Peter and Russ. And we're ready to dig in. However, if you guys are okay with it, I think we owe our fans and our listeners a little bit of an explanation on a few topics that have come up throughout our first set of episodes I'm not okay with that. You're not, you're not okay with that, Peter? Okay. Yeah, I'd like to leave our audience guessing. Russ, are you okay with that? Showing a little love to our audience? Absolutely. If it means we get to talk more about Dune, I'm all in. All right. Well, that's one of the things we have, we'll have to clear up here. So, Peter, sorry you're overruled by a simple majority, which is I'm pretty sure that's the rule that we came up with. And if we didn't, we just came up with it now that uh, we can uh, overrule with a simple majority here. So, What you're forgetting is that I'm the one who has the opinions that matter the most. I have the most important things to say. But even if we give you a weighting of two and ourselves a weighting of like 1.5 or something, we still, it's still five to two or three to two. I don't know. I can't do math anymore. What are numbers? Because you're forgetting I'm three times the manual. <laughs> All right. So few things that we have maybe mentioned, maybe we've mentioned off camera and has come up as kind of a little bit of an inside thing during our, our chats. But I think we should just kind of come clean on everything and make sure that everybody's keeping up with us here so that we are all ending in the same spot at the end of this book here. First and foremost, we keep talking about Isomov. Who the heck, Peter, is Isomov? Isomov is my mangling of Isaac Asimov. <laughs> It's like the Brangelina of the sci-fi world. There you go. So, yeah, so it was, I think it was in an inadvertent uh, amalgamation of his name and uh, shortening and Brangelinifying. Um, but yeah, Bush so I, it makes it easy for us. One word. We all know we're talking about Isaac Asimov. And uh, so, yeah, so that's what we're calling Isaac Asimov. And uh, so you'll hear us saying that over and over and over again. Mostly unintentionally. <laughs> Sometimes it will be intentional, but yeah. But in any case, we'll try not to confuse you by mostly just saying it over and over again. There's another, uh, there's another thing that came up in our last episode. I tried to build off a little bit of a misspeak that happened and uh, took a little while for everybody to catch up to it. And that was uh, my joke about uh, 
Fesius, F-E-C-I-U-S. Russ, can you tell us a little bit about the Roman hero, Fesius, and his stone or pebble or whatever he was pushing up that mountain there? I, I believe... It's Sisyphus, and he is the individual that throws that. Uh, some skeptics say that he actually hauls the rock on his shoulders up the hill every day, and then it falls back down. Some people think it's a boulder that he pushes back up, but either way, Jason pronounced it as a Fasesian task. But he spelled it for us, and that probably leads us into another explanation, because when Jay spells something, that's how it's spelled. Yeah. Well, before I, we will dig into that. So, but before we do, I just want to be clear, right? Russ, do you remember calling Sisyphus Theseus? Because <laughs> that's that's what I was latching on to. But I was working my way to find Sisyphus. I was like, "What's his name?" Is like Theseus Sisyphus. I got to it. I didn't just. I was like, "Hey, remember that dude, Theseus?" Russ, don't worry. Some antibiotics will clear that right up. Okay. So. To your point, um, we, especially in our last episode, uh, episode six, right? That's the one that comes before seven. Jay's on his counting game tonight. <laughs> <laughs> I'm working on my math. Everything below 10. I'm, I'm trying to figure it all out. You'll get it one of these days. I know. He's I an know. engineer, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> you should be alarmed. Don't worry. It's not like I work on anything important like bridges or roads. I just work on airplanes. So, yes, so uh, after the convenient uh, setup with the T-R-A-D-E-R-E-S, Russ, <laughs> we, we digressed into our spelling uh, debacle that actually highlights another very subtle plug, but um, a plug nonetheless for crises, which is not a word. It's really crises. <laughs> I just want pluralized crisis. And <laughs> multiple crises. And then uh, Peter was going on and on about crises, our savior. Our so. Lord and savior. Our Lord Jesus and savior. Jesus <laughs> I thought it was Christ-I. You're right. It's like octopi. You're right. It's actually crises. And uh, that was actually the, you know, the, the stepping off point for the spelling thing because I spelled crises in Word on my computer, I didn't tell Peter or Russ how I was spelling it or where I was spelling it. And I announced to them that it was spelled as I thought it was spelled, C-R-I-S-E-S. But all I said was, I just spelled it. And that's how it's spelled. <laughs> and that's how it's spelled. <laughs> I, want, I want our listeners out there to know that it was abundantly clear that Jay was typing in the word into his computer. We were well aware that he was attempting to spell check the word. But Russ still uh, still latched onto that and uh, and made it a thing. So, hey, we go with it. Wait, 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 wait. We, we tr I tried to make it a thing, but in your executive cutting, you cut it from being a thing. But true. now we're back to making it a thing. Yes. So now we've actually made it into multiple things because we've now got crises, we've now got, and that's how it's spelled. You know, we've got all kinds of goodness out of that. So. The seizing tasks. The seizing tasks. Yeah. So uh, there's something, Peter, that I think you should explain to us is why is Sir Mac's political agenda built around novelty license plates? What's going on there? 
one of his primary supporters, his name is Bort, and he's really upset that at Itchy and Scratchy Land, they're out of Bort license plates. And that's his main reason for wanting to throw out uh, my boy. Uh, help me out here, guys. What's his name? Salver Harden. Salver Harden. Harden out of office. <laughs> he's like, we want nuclear weapons and more Bort license plates. Do you remember, Peter, the character that you think that you are like? And I yes. also think that you were like that Harden. that guy, Sal- yeah. Salvador Harden. The name eluded me for a moment. <laughs> happens to me a lot all of the new time. Names during this new chapter. Yes. Too many names to Russ's point earlier in the uh, in the pod here. So yes, yeah, so uh, the reason that we keep talking about Bort license plates is not just because Peter made a clever Simpsons reference, but also because Russ and I grew up totally deprived of The Simpsons and had no idea what he was talking about when he first mentioned it. And we had a whole aside about getting educated on The Simpsons, and it was a whole thing. I literally had to send them the links, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> like, look, this is what you – you need to be aware of this. This pop culture is like 25 years old at this point. I- I can't help it that we weren't allowed to watch The Simpsons. And then by the time I got old enough, I was like, meh. And then Futurama came up and I was like, all right, I can get behind this. So if it's a reference from Futurama, I'm all in. But if it's Simpsons, I have to I have to politely decline and blame my parents. <laughs> Russ, you know that I was God once. Yes, you were doing a very good job until everyone died. <laughs> <laughs> So the uh, the other thing, there's actually a few more things here, but I'll uh, I'll get into them one at a time here. You got to leave a little to the imagination, Jason. I know, I know, I know. But there's uh, there's one thing that I want to come clean on because I felt really bad after offending one of our listeners and then not doubly apologizing and only <laughs> only duly apologizing. But it's actually Roman concrete. It is concrete. So that was the correct word. So. Um, maybe now I've offended them again by saying that they didn't know what they were talking about by using the word concrete and they, instead of, you know, they should have used the word cement, but it's not cement and it's Roman concrete and the magic ingredient apparently we've figured out is, is love is seawater. But that being said, we still don't know the, the formula to make it work, to make it come together like it did. So Mason is just Jason with an M I think will be, um, Glad to hear that you're apologizing for real. I hope so. And as a member of the Masonic community, I think that uh, maybe the all-seeing eye might uh, might forgive. Sauron? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so the last, I think for today, we've been through quite a few demystifications. There's one, and that's for our fans, for our listeners. Peter, I think there's a demystification that I have to... Um, lay out there for you you can take the opportunity to also provide a little bit of your logic chain that went into your referencing of pharrell and most deaf and then at the end i uh, i'll have to fill you in on a little small fact that you should be aware of well wasn't pharrell one of the characters in uh in the the traders yes i believe you extrapolated pharrell into pharrell yeah so pharrell is uh yeah he's an incredible rapper, and uh, obviously everyone knows him, including your grandmother. He was on the Ellen Show, you know, and uh, in the Minions. I movie. made several references to him hanging out with Most Def, and then uh, obviously that also Most Def was in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. So he, uh, you know, don't forget to bring a towel 
Well, that's a South Park reference, but you know. Peter, I'm not a towel. You're a towel. You're a t- Tally, you're the worst character ever. <laughs> I'm not a towel. You're a towel. There it is, folks. The logic chain uh, unfurled. We're having, we're having fun here. Yeah, so don't panic, guys. Don't panic. <laughs> don't panic. Peter's a towel. Most Def and Pharrell are, but, but also un- there is, are dropping a gold album. Anytime. There is a towel from Hitchhiker's Guide. That's what he tells yeah. Martin Freeman to grab while he pulls him out of his apartment that Dish gets demolished. Towel. Yeah, bring a towel. Yeah. Marty Friedman is in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? That's right. Morgan Freeman. Dude, that guy was great in Shawshank. <laughs> Loved Marty Friedman. You remember when he played God like 10,000 times? Who doesn't? You were doing quite well until everybody died. <laughs> so the uh, the bubble, unfortunately... Uh, Peter, that I have to pop for you. And this is a little bit of a teaser also to both of you guys and our audience. I can't handle being teased. I have a fragile. I have started reading ahead. I have started reading the second uh, foundation novel. What? Yes. Yeah. And here's the, here's the sad truth. I'm not going to give away the story, but I will say one of the characters names who's in the first chapter or the first few chapters of the book. It's most deaf. Peter, his name is... Forel, I kid you not. Amazing development. You, you kind of, you jump the gun a little bit, but you may be, you may actually have the prescience. I've been dabbling in the spice. (laughs) I told you to stay away from that. Our listeners haven't been uh, keeping up with things. I've definitely been dabbling in the spice. And welcome back to our Dune podcast. (laughs) That wasn't even me this time. Russ, that that, that could be the icing on the cake. Do you want to lay into the Dune thing a little bit, and or did we hit that enough with your answer to the question at the I last? Think we, I think we've touched on. Have that we beat enough. that to death? We we will continue to reference our Dune podcast, which is taking place <laughs> in an alternate dimension right now. It's true. According to the multiverse, we are and are not recording a Dune podcast at this very moment. Yes, <laughs> it's like Schrodinger's cat, but like. A podcast. Look forward to all of these episodes re-released as the Dune Podcast (laughs) (laughs) for your listening pleasure. To be fair, Russ is – he's on the journey when it comes to Dune. He's – what are you, two, two, three books in, Russ? I am at Children of Dune, the third book. Children of Dune, yes. That one's a little bit of a grind in my opinion. But uh, God, number four. Number four is amazing. Number four haunts me. I think about it in <laughs> quiet moments. I'm like, is that, uh, is that the emperor? What is that? The God Emperor of Dune. God Emperor of Dune. Yeah, yeah. Which is your spirit child, <laughs> according to our last podcast. Yeah, it's it's powerful. That's the one, Peter. That you know, I referenced very early on in our foundation discussions about the time frame seemed a little tight. You know, mm-hmm. twenty, thirty years. It seemed a little tight. Right. You're talking. Couple thousand years. Now we're talking a time frame where cultural change can happen, and get a major religion established. Yeah, major religion can be established. You got like terraforming, you know, changes that can affect the the world. I love terraforming. Terraforming is so metal. It is. Yeah, it's it's much more metal than tin, for sure. It is not tinny at all. So, uh, fun fact: you know what I found out about tin? is that when you mix it with copper, it makes bronze. And that blue, I was like, oh, that's where bronze comes from. That's what you use tin for. So. Yeah, I mean, yeah, tin is also used in 
a lot of things like car car alloys. Honda used to use it in their doors, but yes, bronze. <laughs> Russ has fond memories of his, of his tin panel doors. My Honda. GD Honda Accord that if you looked at it, it looked the like a way, golf ball. If you look at it in the glare of the light, it just had like pock marks like a golf ball. Over. If you stared at it hard enough, you could make your own <laughs> ocular dent. But the thing ran forever. It's it it's true. Atomics. Yeah, I said nucleics. Listen, we have to we have to settle that score because we were definitely exposed to the word atomics several times over. In, Are we? Yeah. You found it. Yeah, big time. Oh, okay. Yeah. So they do use both. So that's why I was felt like I was going crazy every time I bumped into nucleics. Like I thought it was atomics. Like yeah, he keeps he very rarely in this last section used the word nucleics, and everything was atomics. So I think we've I think we've demystified um, most of the potential you know uh, stumbling points of our of our podcast where we in the past maybe failed to either provide full context or explanations to some of our quotes and comments here. So I hope that uh, everybody who has been listening and is still with us is ready for our final episode with full information and full understanding of where we've been so far. Jokes are always funnier when you explain them. I think it's totally true. (laughs) (laughs) So with that, Peter, um, are you prepared to give us a little rundown of, I mean, this is a long section. Yes. I am poorly prepared to discuss this. Poorly prepared to discuss this. But I mean, it's inside you, man. Let it out. It just let it, it is flow. inside. All right. Let's get into this thing, guys, before I lose the spice. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. So th- this chapter, we got introduced to a new guy. Um, his name's Hober Mala, Ma- Mallow. Hober Mallow, who I'm going to call Marshmallow from now on. Um, and he's from the one of the four kingdoms in the foundation named uh, Smyrno. And he's the head trader at this time. Mallow is approached by a foundation politician by the name of Jorain Sutt. And he wants uh, Mallow to go investigate uh, Karelian space to figure out what's going on with some of these disappearing cruisers. Apparently three or four of them have gone missing. And the concern is that the Karelians may have atomics, which would threaten the foundation's primacy in that realm, which is one of their main spheres of influence over the galaxy uh during this whole exchange uh, sut insults mala by implying that he's not a full member of the foundation because he was born on smyrno and not terminus uh but sut's primary reason for sending him out is that he thinks they're on the verge of another selden crisis which is something that is taught in uh the schools at this point so mala heads out on a galactic starship called the far star with a trader named Jame Twer. That's quite a name. And Mallow suspects that Twer may be working for Sut as a spy. And they end up encountering uh, a situation, and help me out here, guys, with the exact specifics, where he has to pass judgment on a foundation. A holy man of the foundation, right? Yes, but what, what would you call it? Priest? Uh, not a priest. A not a pilgrim, not a pilgrim, missionary, cleric, a missionary. Thank you. Sorry, yeah. So, you're right. They they approach a 
um, a foundation missionary who's preaching the word of the galactic spirit, which is illegal. Uh, it's illegal in Corel, and it's illegal for within the eyes of the foundation. You're jumping the gun a little bit there, Peter, because we, we got to set that up because his crew brought this guy onto the ship. They were, they were docked in Corel. They're waiting for the Commodore to approve their, their, um, mm. their visit, their yeah. visit. So for them to d- disembark their ship, they have to get approval. In the meantime, this priest or this uh, missionary requests refuge on the ship and his men let the guy on and he's like livid, right? He doesn't want this guy on his ship and we can't really figure out why until, right, he confronts him and then this stuff starts to come out, right? He's a missionary on the planet. Mallow knows it's illegal. So he's already like suspicious of this dude. Yeah, it's in and, violation of their treaty that they have with the Corellians. The Corellians right. are super secular. They're not interested in having, you know, the religion of Terminus and the Foundation infecting their uh, ability to rule. Because, for example, what happened in the last chapter in The Traitors, the, um, on Ascoff, am I saying a- that right? Ascon. 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 So back in Ascon. They, they, and then they had this whole revolution that that threw, overthrew the, the king and and all but name, and it was because of the the religious movement of Terminus and the Foundation. So there's this basically an armor around a lot of these secular societies now that won't allow the preaching of the galactic spirit to the people because they don't want their their authority threatened. So going back to the status, you know, the the situation on the ship, this. Missionary isn't supposed to be on Corel, and he's in violation of the treaty, which is illegal in the eyes of the foundation. Um, but the the crew let him on on board, and you know my guy Marshmallow knows that there's something up almost immediately, and he instead of taking the bait and saving this guy, he gives him he turns him over to the Corellians to do with them do with them what they will which may have consequences on the back end. He realizes that he may be paying a price for this on the back end kind of politically. And uh, maybe we need to kind of take it in chunks. So what you hit so far, Peter, is like the setup, right? So he's uh, he's sent on this mission with, you know, Sut kind of sets him up. He sends Tor along with him. Through that whole thing, Tor's like begging him to take this guy in and everybody's like, you know, they're all – followers of the galactic spirit so they're all confused that he's not giving this guy refuge but he's like this is a big a big deal right he kicks this guy back out of the spaceship kicks him back to the corellians effectively you know puts a points a gun at twer telling him to not threaten his authority and he sends this guy back to the corellians immediately after right he gets a note from the commodore and th- you guys got to help me here because this blew my mind they call him the commodore but they it's not the commodore yeah, it, they spell it without an o and i'm like in commodore i kept thinking it. commodore but it's commodore i don't know what that is so but anyway this guy like says okay i'll talk to you right he he passed his test if you will so he thinks um but this is kind of like a big deal because it we we see it again it comes back up later on um in the section right so it's an important chapter, point yeah. Okay. 
So, yeah, I don't know. One of the things I, I kind of looking back after reading the whole chapter, why do you think they chose Mallow? Why did Sut like pick out Marshmallow? Do we feel like he had too much influence? Russ, did you want to give it a go? He picks he picks Mallow because he wants somebody who's smart and who's aware. Mallow's a threat, is he not? I think he establishes himself as a threat later, but I, I, from the get go, I don't think he's a threat. Like they, after a certain point, he starts discussing his desire to become mayor. I thought that was after the negotiations on Corel. Could be wrong about that. Also, we see the word sardonically again. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't think they explain why from the get-go. They definitely say... Well, they pick him. Uh, they know he's a Smyrnian, right? And they tell right, us so what, that, how to I, say that, right? Someone from Smyrno is a Smyrnian. So they know he's a Smyrnian. They know he's not a foundation man from Terminus. He's an outsider who's been assimilated into you know, the, the, the foundation. And they pick this guy to go to Corel, which is the place that they think that their trade ships are disappearing. So kind of smells like they're setting him up, right? They're not picking him because he's savvy. They're picking him because they could live without him being around, right? They also mentioned right after that, that comment about he is not an easy prey to dupery. Um, it says, this is a chance that must be run if there is treachery. It is the capable men that are implicated. If not, we need a capable man to detect the truth. And Mallow will be guarded. So they, they know that this guy is capable. He may somehow sniff out the treachery that they've got him involved in. But they would rather have somebody, at least eyes, sending reports back. What's going on in Smyrna? So it's both, right? He's he's savvy, but he's also a political antagonist, right? And he's also a master trader, too. And he's also Hober Mallow. Right? And he's also a Smyrnian. Can we can we and get a double also, dip on that? Also, he's a big dude. He is a oh, yeah. large dude, right? It comes big up shoulders, at some point. Big hands. He's a massive human. He also likes to be in the nude sometimes. I didn't get that. This, was that your imagination? Skin. No, was at that the your end, imagination? At the no, very he's definitely end, definitely naked at the end. Is yeah, he? when they say he's catch that. down to his skin. Oh, when he's I, in his big palace, I didn't. Uh, I just glazed right past that. In his mouth. Didn't even. Yeah, wasn't right. looking that's for right. it, so I didn't notice it. Maybe you guys were kind of like getting ready for that, right? During the whole chapter, you're getting warmed up. I was actually naked the whole time I read this. Oh, were you? You too? Down to the skin, Peter? Peter okay. Peter reads Freeform. It's his childlike sense of wonder that brings him back. <laughs> it absolutely is. <laughs> brings me right back. So, yeah. So, we um, moving on. We we have this, uh, this incident with the missionary. And then Mallow manages to negotiate a incredible deal with Comdor Asper Argo on the back end with uh, basically selling atomics with washing machines and uh, floor scrubbers and all sorts of domestic household products and offers him something like you can charge 10 times what I what you pay for it. And then somehow he gets half of, of whatever the proceeds are. Let's also acknowledge that there is still income tax 50 bazillion years in the future, whatever it is. Oh, yeah, yeah. 
Well, and that's what Mal gets to keep a certain amount and the rest he pays to the foundation. He pays, right? Yeah, to the foundation. Yeah, he gets 50% of all profits as part of like the trader's agreement across the mm-hmm. across the foundation. And then he has to pay his income tax at the end of the year. Right. And he kind of spells everything out like pretty upfront with Comdor, which is that, you know, you get to buy these appliances, but then they only last so long. So then you get the resale on the back end once everybody realizes how great they are. Not only that, I can fix your manufacturing processes if you let me take a look at your your steel plants. So they have steel fabrication facilities and can smelt steel and whatnot. And is this also a situation where whoever smelt it dealt it? <laughs> it absolutely is. So then he uh, he goes to the steel plants and he's looking around. And he's looking for signs of atomics. Um, you know, keeping an eye on his primary mission. And Mallow actually notices at some point that uh, the Commodore's private guard have the, what is it, an eagle insignia? Eagle and rising sun? What is the symbol of the old empire? It's a spaceship. It's a spaceship and sun. A spaceship and sun uh, insignia of the old empire on their atomic, like, ray guns or whatever they are. And so he quickly realizes that empire's still around. In one way or another. Yeah. So before we like before we wait, go, wait, wait, that, wait, Jay. That's... Okay, before before you go. Any oh wait, wait, wait. Before you go, hold on. Before you. Are, oh wait, wait. Go ahead, Russ. Before I go, you go. That the empire might strike back. <laughs> I had to. For those and of you just joining us, <laughs> welcome back to our Star Wars podcast. <laughs> Got him. Well, I mean, we we do have the Corellian like fleet here right so that's i know that's isn't correct aren't the corellians yeah they're also in star wars right yes i'm yeah. sure star wars with a c I'm sure or something that foundation ripped off star wars i'm sure even though george like, lucas so, definitely thought of that first no doubt 1974 and this book was written in like 1951 right. so yeah so like he's there and so his objective is to try to find these three missing trade ships to try to find uh, signs of nucleics or, or atomics that the uh, this planet has. The gun at of the guard is the only sign that he sees the whole time, right? And you're right, Peter. This is not an Asconian scam, right? He's telling them everything right up front. This is how long it's going to last. And you're like, you, Comdor, are my business partner in this venture, right? No foundation... Uh, religious antics involved, right? That's, whatsoever. That's a primary, uh, primary point of negotiation. Yeah, there yeah. can be no foundation religion. The Commodore's not into it, and he doesn't want it to threaten his, like you said, threaten his uh, his reign. So, right. And Marshmallow uh, is cool with that. He's cool yeah. with it, right? And remember our Harry Seldon reveal, and he talked about you guys have to change your mind about, you know, the spiritual over the temporal because nationalism and uh, regionalism are going to, you know, overpower. And so I wanted to go back to something Russ said in the last episode, and that was about the economics. And Peter, you brought up a very good point about how, you know, the China-U.S. trade has been essential to maintaining a balance and peace. And I think if we go back to Harry Seldon's claim about needing to worry more about regionalism or nationalism, you know, we're seeing exactly the right counterpoint or counterbalance to that trend. 
through an interconnected web of trade, right? It will balance regionalism and nationalism by creating these hooks and lo and locked in trading relationships that will in enforce peace between traders, right? Yes. And so, Russ, you thought that setting up these type of relationships, these trade relationships, was manipulative, not necessarily peaceful. But I, I would almost argue that it is manipulative, but towards keeping peace, not as a way to instigate violence. What say you to that, sir? I, I would say that I read this last section and that it confirmed that the whole purpose of getting into another system's economy was a way in which to get their foot in the door to bring religious influence. It's, yeah, it's like religious influence, but they continue to reference Ascone in this in this section. Like, remember what happened back in Ask? Like, we're not going to let that happen here. Right. And it was, and they don't. Right. Right. And they don't. There's a there's a couple scenes that I I forgot to mention. We we uh, we actually have two female characters in this. Yeah, yeah. It's a in this uh, chapter. One is non-speaking uh, when Marshmallow's showing off his wares. Mm -hmm. He shows off this pretty rad necklace that glows. And he has one of the female servants of the Commodore's household show it off for them. And, uh, you know, she's clearly very disappointed when uh, they take it back. <laughs> and then we meet the Commodore's wife, the Commodora, who... We get a little bit of interesting background on the back end, but when we first meet her, I don't think we exactly know who she is. But the Commodore gets to uh, give her some fancy jewelry that glows and knows that she will be elevated in her status in society because of this. And he also knows that he's going to keep this this little trinket to himself and make artificial scarcity and you know, basically have the Dowingers, I think he says at one point, fighting over it so that they can have the, the coolest new jewelry in town. And bid up the price, right? Yeah, bid up the price and, you know, then he'll make way more money. And uh, the Commodore, when we meet her, is awful. She's awful, awful, awful. She's just berating her husband. Well, her husband's no prize, right? Yeah, he is also awful, to be fair. Honestly, you know what? I, when I first met her, I thought of Princess Aurelian. Aurelian? Aurelian, yeah. Aurelian. Princess Aurelian. Yeah. Okay. Princess Aurelian. I have to say it just like Russ. <laughs> yeah, so uh, so I, I thought of her and how basically she was raised in this society of intrigue and political maneuvering and i thought that commodore was probably very much like that a lot of her criticisms and her quote-unquote nastiness probably came from that kind of mentality of thinking where she's constantly trying to maintain and accumulate power and so she's frustrated with her kind of dumb but also real awful husband who's the somehow in charge of this world. Um, and it's alluded to that it's mainly because of her father's influence and his access to starships. That is what is keeping Commodore in power. Mm -hmm. But now he's got, you know, economic influence too. But she also has that over him, right? That's her leverage. He depends on right. her. He, yeah. She does threaten to uh, bomb the city into dust from an orbital bombardment when if she were to call her daddy. So there's two things that I want to not forget to touch here. But before we uh, go 
full bore on the Commodora and Asimov introducing us finally to our first woman, pivotal woman character, I'd still like to wrap up the free trade situation. Russ, you said you still think that trade is a means to an end of introducing religion. The way I read it was that that's what Mallow and Sut represent, right? So Sut represents the old way of using religion to maintain the balance of power through their realm. Mallow believes that interconnected trade is the next phase of the growth of the foundation towards galactic empirical power. My, my point wasn't that it was economics to get to religion. It was using economics to get in to give Terminus a, a need or a position to be involved and then also introducing religion, you know, two parts, not, not like get into economics to then turn it and be the end point, be religion, but to have twofold access. All right. So I guess we'll have to follow that through as we get into the next book and see if we've turned the corner on the spiritual power over the temporal or if we've evolved to a new state. So going back now to uh, to where you were, Peter. Yeah, the Commodore. So what did you think of Isimov uh, based on our earlier discussion, right? I mean, maybe the jury wasn't out for you. I, I think, you know, for me that I had mentioned the jury was still out. It's not clear if he's leaving women out on purpose to avoid things becoming unnecessarily focused on a relationship or love or something like that, which I know Russell would just absolutely probably vomit on the pages if he read. <laughs> and then, you know, the other option is like that he's just a, you know, function of his era and uh, a natural kind of... Something, something tells me there's something else going on. With and then you think something else is going on. I think that on. Isaac has some feelings that he needs to investigate a little bit deeper, mm. especially with, uh, you know, cigars being put in mouths and he's stripped to the skin and his beautiful tan, dark skin, well-oiled <laughs> muscles. All right. I think I understand where you're going it's, with that. So His desire to wrestle. Is that his <laughs> desire? I didn't hear that. Roman style. <laughs> I think you're imagining stuff now, Peter. I think you're you're mixing your personal fantasies with what we're reading in the novel at this point. Nonsense. <laughs> so for me, I kind of came full circle and had to admit that, yeah, I, I think Isimov is a victim of his era. He's kind of just talking about dudes here because that's what society is about at that time. And he's not really doesn't have a noble purpose. He's just a typical male-centered society view kind of writer. I mean, at one point they do, uh, I don't want to get too far into it, but they discuss a, a housewives rebellion at one point. And it's like, you know, it's taken in jest. Like, oh, like what kind of threat would that be? So, you know, there's right about the appliance, of, the home appliances not functioning right, anymore. The, the nuclear is getting old. Yeah. So Mallow, after he figures out that the Corellians have some atomics of some sort, he goes to investigate f further and he checks out a world called Suiena, which was once the capital of an imperial province, uh, thinking that that would be a, an excellent source for to figure out whether or not um, atomics are coming from there. And what he finds instead is that this world had been crushed uh, by a imperial viceroy who had ambition to become an emperor himself. And the the local government basically is is 
completely gone. Every Everybody's poor, and he encounters one old man who used to be... It, it seemed like to me that he used to be involved deeply, if not the head of the government of Suiana. I could be wrong about that. And we find out that the Empire still exists, but it is has a, kind of a fundamental different view on its its dominance in the universe. So it's much more of a, uh, a warlike crush and dominate things that are a threat to further your power and influence as opposed to the foundations, which is more interconnected with trade and mutual alliances and the spread of technology. Yeah. It's like ambitious uh, political leaders or viceroys are um, at each other's throats trying to become the next galactic emperor, which doesn't sound like a very great place to end up because the second you get there, you got, you know, 15, 20 other, you know, strong viceroys with a target on your, on your back trying to get you. And I think they said like multiple emperors have been assassinated in the past few years and they've gone through emperors like rolls of toilet paper if they have still rolls of toilet paper in 50,000 years from now. We've descended into barbarism, so they absolutely have toilet paper. Okay. <laughs> and not just leaves. And not – well, they might have just leaves too. Oh, okay. Depending on the planet, of course. Depends sure. on the planet. Yeah. It really does. I get a, I'm, I'm a little confused here. At some point, he enters a power plant. Mm-hmm. When does that happen? So after he visits Onam Bar, did you want to take that one, Russ? Yeah, he he sits down and talks to um, Onam Bar and gets... This is on Suiana, right? Yes, it is. This is on... Okay. So he gets a passport um, to use. He gets some information not to really use his accent because they'll know that... His Smyrnian-ness um, will give him away. So he goes to these tech men who run the uh, power plants, and this one guy is potentially corruptible. Uh, he goes, and he just wants to see the power plant. He, wants to, he doesn't want to do anything. He just wants to see it from a distance. So he is able to bribe this individual. Similarly, with the little gadgets, and it's a single force field, and gives the guy the force field, and you know, a guy questions him, like, oh, well, I got the force field now. And he's he's like, well, you know, obviously I didn't give you all of them. I have my own. Um, but gets the, the tech man to bring him into the power plant, and he's able to see. But his biggest question is, if something were to happen to the power plant, could a tech man or tech man actually repair something on the power plant? And the guy is, like, blown away by the blasphemy of the question because these plants were built for eternity. And Pober Mallow's like, yeah, yeah, I get that. But like, let's suppose. And then he gives him a hard time. Like, how dare you suppose? It's like unscientific to suppose something that won't happen. And he's like, okay, yeah. Like, but what if I shoot something and it blows up? Like, can you fix it? And it's clear that the guy can't fix the power plants. These tech men do not know how to repair. They only know how to operate. Right. Right. And it's a massive power plant. Yeah, it's it's not dissimilar to, you know, what what my interpretation was of what was going on in the, you know, the four kingdoms, right? The um, the priest class would be trained up in how to run like their specific little niche, but if anything were to majorly go wrong, 
everything, you know, they would have to call on the foundation to come fix stuff. But it seems beyond that, right? These guys have zero capacity. Like there's nobody back in the old empire who can keep these things running even. Right. And actually I found the, uh, just an interesting quote. So when, uh, Mallow's grilling the guy, he says, you know, suppose, I suppose the machines aren't immune to nuclear forces. Suppose I fuse a vital connection or smash a quartz D-tube. And the guy says, well, then, shouted the tech man furiously, you would be killed. <laughs> That's his response. <laughs> so, you know, if, if you break it, we'll break you. It's nothing about fixing it or or being able to recover the uh, – the power plant. Why does he want to see the power plant? He wants to confirm that that there are atomics, and then he wants to see he wants to see the size, and he wants to know if they actually know how to use the atomics. So it's it's clear it's old imperial atomics, and that they don't know how to fix the old imperial uh, machinery. Okay. And that's imperial machinery, not empirical machinery, like I said. You, before. you know, I was just thinking about that too. <laughs> <laughs> but it is also probably to some degree empirical. But you know, is it imperial? Let's just imperial? agree to call. Let's just agree to call it imperial technology. <laughs> Jason's good at spelling, not at numbers. I'm good at splepping, but not pronunciating. So you know, he leaves this power plant, and then what happens? He goes back to. Does he go to terminus? Is that where he ends up? I believe so. Right? He like he had made like a a backup plan and. And had um, some of his crew or something kind of station themselves away from Cywina or however you say that planet's name. Um, and then he went there on like a lifeboat or something like that, right? Off his ship. Yeah. And then he goes – so then he goes back to his ship where he told them he would meet them. And then they proceed back to Terminus at that point. So thank you again for joining us. Uh, we've covered roughly the first half of the Merchant Prince's. Uh, Hober Mallow is on his way back to Terminus. Join us again next time to see where that goes. I have been your host tonight of the Such Nerds podcast with my illustrious co-hosts. Peter. And Russ. Have a good night, everybody. (laughs) 